0: Last week, we began looking at the first sermon that was ever given to the church, right? This is the start of what we would call church, well, how we would recognize church. And this was the first sermon, and Peter was the one giving this sermon. And we started all the way back. You guys remember, what, two, three weeks ago, we looked at the, the, the final coming of the Holy Spirit here, the, the time when the Holy Spirit fell, and we saw this whole process that happened, right? Right? It fell, it sounded like a rushing wind, like a hurricane kind of happening in the room. We don't really know. It doesn't really play it out in the Greek that it was It like, was all their little turbans flying up in here? It doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like it was more of a sound, but maybe, I don't know, we weren't there. But what we do know is scripture makes it clear that there was at least, at a minimum, a very loud noise of, of wind rushing through and that there were tongues of fire that set on each head, Right? The fact is, is that we know these things because Luke told us, which means they all saw these things. They all heard these things. These were evident to them because Luke was not there in that moment. Y'all got that picture, right? Luke wasn't on the scene quite yet. We're going to talk about when Luke gets on the scene because it's pretty evident in the book of Acts when he shows up because things begin to shift, right? Instead of speaking to third person, he's like, well, me and old Paul, we did this. Oh, okay, Luke, got it. You're there too. That's not where we're at right at the moment. And so Luke had heard all these things. He had, he had taken eyewitness testimony just like he had through his gospel. And so that's where we started. And then Peter began explaining to the people that had heard all the commotion outside, Remember, they were speaking in tongues, in languages they themselves did not know, but the people outside that were in earshot, remember, they didn't have double-pane, good insulated windows. They were just wide open holes. So whatever was happening in the inside, in my big mouth, they would have definitely heard, who knows how far away, right? Because I got a big old mouth. Well, there was 120 of them up there, right? And they're just speaking out what the Holy Spirit put in their hearts, and so this was happening, and, and remember, we saw two different reactions, right? One was, man, they're drunk, which is a just stupid reaction on its face. And we talked at length about the fact that it would be like a junior high child talking to an astrophysicist who had his doctorate in astrophysicist about astrophysics with an intelligence level that's beyond him. And then that astrophysics is, or astrophysicist looking at that junior high child and be like, boy, you must be drunk. And you're like, well, no. Drunkenness usually doesn't bring intelligence. Anybody that's been drunk knows that, right? You can't even talk. You're slurring your words, man. You can barely talk straight. You can't walk straight. You can't do anything straight. That was the kind of stupidity, basically, that was happening on their end. And why were, why were they doing that? Well, you guys, we talked about the fact that so often in our world today, it's easier to dismiss than it is to check into something, isn't it? It's easier. I don't want to look at that. We do that a lot with politics, y'all. Listen, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I'll say this. Let's not just believe what we read. If it's that important to you that you're going to go spout it off on Facebook, well, you better research it before you do it. I'm just saying. There you go. Good night. Have a great night. No, I'm kidding. That is really not what we're here for, but something I just felt like the Lord wanted me to say. So here's the deal. Peter began... This sermon, this very first sermon, he stands up when he hears the commotion outside. He goes to the window with the eleven other disciples, and he says this: "He's like, guys, what you're seeing is explainable." And we talked at length, didn't we, about the fact that who was Peter in the Gospels? Never once did you read Peter saying like, "Well, um, it says in the prophet so and so that this is how it's going to go." What was Peter doing? Listen, y'all. I got a voice, and I'm going to tell you what's up. Jesus, you're wrong. And what did Jesus say back to him? Get behind me, Satan. Mm. Peter here, clearly under the power of the Holy Spirit, not at all the Peter we've, we witnessed before in the gospel where he was just walking in his own confidence, which usually got him in a lot of trouble or ended up not going well. No, what do we see Peter here? He stands up and he talks with an authority that maybe he once thought he had in his own flesh, but never did. No, he stands up and he speaks with an authority, but what authority? God's authority. He brings it to the word. He brings them to the word. And he, and he shares Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32 for you note takers. And that's what we looked at last week. And he points out, you guys, that the last days began right here. When the Holy Spirit fell, the last days started. And some of y'all might be here and you're like, man, we've been in the last days for a while. You're right. Do you know why? Because our God is gracious. Because guess what? If we would have been like, by the way, this is the last day, y'all, you better figure it out. Well, we wouldn't exist. Aren't you glad he waited? Now, let's go one step further. I'm glad that he waited, not just for me to be born, but to wait until I was 16 at the end of my rope and ready to kill myself to decide to follow him. I'm glad he waited till that day. How about y'all? I'm glad he waits now because I got friends. I got relatives. I got people in my life that aren't saved yet. I'm glad he's still waiting. However, at the same time as a Christian, I'm like, oh, Lord, come back. Right? That's the tear in all of our hearts, isn't it, Christians? Man, come back, Jesus. I'm ready to go home. But save these people. Get a hold of their hearts. Don't let them be left behind. So he talked about this. Man, Joel. The prophet Joel says in the last days, what was going to happen? The Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on how many people? All people. Whoever wanted it. Whoever wanted it. And today we're going to talk about more of what that means and how you get there. But the reality is, is he gave this first part of the message. He spoke about this fact that Joel, we're still in the last days. And when does the last days end? On the last day. That's when it ends. And the last day, by God's grace, isn't even the rapture. That just means when we get to go home, Christians, but he does it another seven years after that where there's going to be tons of people still coming to the Lord. I'm thankful for that, you guys. We are blessed with a gracious and merciful God beyond measure. You guys, the Holy Spirit from this point forward was going to be poured out on all that wanted it and it continues today. We as a church are not a cessationist church, if you know what that means. I don't believe that the gifts ended then in the apostolic age. I think they still continue. But like we talked about before, I don't want a show either. We see that too often in too many churches where the show is about the person that has the gift instead of about God being glorified and honored through the gift. What do we see here? We see a miraculous thing People speaking in languages that they could not understand. We see things that cannot necessarily quickly and easily be categorized and explained. And yet, what was the end result? People hearing and learning about who Jesus Christ was. If it is not about that, then it is not of God. So today, we're going to finish up the sermon. Peter's going to finish it up for us. And we're going to learn, you guys, that Jesus is the gateway to receiving the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't just stop and be like, yeah, we got this new toy, this new thing. woo!" He's like, there's a way to get there and you just don't get it. There's a lot more involved. Now, at the same time, I want to tell you guys something. I named the message, the simple truth of salvation, because it is simple. It is good news. It's easy and life altering all at the same moment. We're going to talk more about that. The message today shows the simplicity of the gospel. It also shows us, you guys, that God had a plan all along, and there is nothing hidden. There's nothing that he was like, whoa, I'm shocked. I fell off my throne. Never happens. It can happen. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everything. So let's start. Verse 22 of chapter 2 in the book of Acts says this. So Peter now has established through Joel the things that the people saw. He goes back to Old Testament scripture and he's like, look, this is what Joel talked about. This is the very beginning of it. This is what's happening right now. The Holy Spirit has fallen. And here, you guys, he's explaining the why and the how. And those are important concepts to get our heads around because without the why and without the how, you don't get to the place where you're walking in the spirit. You don't. Because you can't get your head around it. Hear this there are plenty of Christians that are walking around with the why and the how, but they're not walking in the Spirit. They've got Christ, they're missing the Holy Spirit. I want us to have it all because God provides it all. For who? All of us that want it. <laughs> Peter establishes these things and now he's jump, jumping into the why and the how. And how does he start by doing it? He starts by, again, calling their attention in God's authority, and he wants them to know a bunch of things. He wants them to know that all of this, the entire moment and every part of it, was and is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he goes one step further. He makes it clear that without Jesus, nothing else matters. You guys hear that in there? He's saying, he's like, man, this guy, Jesus, he's the important part. He's the one. He's the most vital piece of the entire puzzle here. And he's saying, look, this guy, Jesus, was obviously from God. Why? Well, he cites some things here. He cites miracles. He's like, hey, you saw the miracles that he accomplished. You saw the things that were accomplished in his life. Jesus had astounded everyone. I need you all to hear this. He astounded everyone the lowest of the low culturally. He astounded the poorest of the poor, and he astounded the most highly educated and the most wealthy, didn't he? We look at the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, but how often did they try to come and trip him up, and what were they left with? They were left astonished because he kept shutting them down, and he kept doing things. And they were completely against him. Why? Because they were, he was kind of, in their mind, stealing their power that they didn't really have anyway, and stealing their authority so they could basically pointing out their hypocrisy through the way they were living and the way they were acting. But the reality is, you guys, is that they were still astounded by him. And nobody denies that he did things. And listen, I could only imagine... Think about this: when Lazarus was raised from the dead, how many people do we know, how many religious leaders were around whenever Jesus did miracles? We know. Almost every one of them, he, there was religious leaders around trying to catch him, trying to do something, trying to figure out what's up, in a way to make sure that they could discredit him, and not once could they? Because, well, because he's Jesus. You guys, we know that God used miracles to prove beyond a doubt to these Jews that he was who he said he was. You guys, if you go back and you read Old Testament prophets, we read prophecy upon prophecy that talks about this idea that when the Messiah comes, that he was going to come with signs and wonders. There was going to be some special anointing on him from God that is different unlike other people. And listen, there were other people. We know Elijah did miracles, right? Did Elijah, the prophet, ever say he's going to rise again from the dead? Nope. Elijah didn't even have to die, right? He's like, yeah, woo, went up on the chariot of fire. That would have been cool. But nobody else said what Jesus said. Nobody else did what Jesus did. Nobody else ever came back from the dead like Jesus did. Lazarus came back, but why? Because Jesus called him. Why did Jesus come back? Because God wanted him to. He raised himself from the dead. He is God, like he said he was. And you guys, next, Peter makes it completely clear that Jesus didn't die by accident. G- mm. Never mind. Jesus didn't die by accident. I had a movie reference in my head, but the movie is a little raunchy, so I'm not going to bring it up. Monty Python always pushing a a line. I won't bring it up. But anyway, Jesus didn't accidentally take a cross from somebody because he was gracious. Jesus went to the cross for us. He knowingly went to the cross. And not only did he knowingly go to the cross, you guys, while he was alive, I need you to hear this. God ordained his plan before creation was created not before humanity was created, before anything was created, when the only thing in existence was God himself in community with himself, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, in that moment, he already knew the plan. We need to get our heads around that. This wasn't plan B. This was the plan all along. And Peter makes it, abundantly clear. He makes it abundantly clear. And I want it to sink in to all of our hearts, you guys, because I don't know about you, but maybe there are some people here today that know that this week they made a wreck of everything. Or maybe you look at your life and you're like, man, I've made a wreck of my entire life. How could God ever choose to use me? I'm living proof that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And I'm not alone, am I? Y'all a bunch of fools. I mean that in love. We're all a bunch of foolish people, aren't we? We've done foolish things. God knew that. He still chose to die for us. You guys, God had this overarching plan that he knew was going to happen and was going to be accomplished. Do you think that that was just for that moment when Jesus died, or do you think that it still continues today? I do still think that it's continuing today. God has a plan. God knows how this is going to end. God knows all of the intricate pieces. He doesn't see your one little line of fabric that you're weaving in through the the tapestry of life. He sees the whole tapestry. He knows it all, and he knows just how your life weaves in and out of other people's lives and what all that looks like and how beautiful it's going to be at the end because it's his plan plan. And Christian, the only difference between us and the people that don't know Jesus yet is that we've actually accepted that we're part of the plan. And we submit our lives to him to let him run the plan. But I need you to hear something because I need us to think about this. Satan and his demonic horde, you guys, thought that they were winning something when they killed Jesus. And in fact, they were doing the polar opposite. There's a song by a really heavy hardcore band that sings from the perspective of Satan, and he says, "Come and watch my fall." And he's like, "My," he says, "My moment of uh, tragedy has brought your triumph." And it's like Satan's talking to us. Now you can get all into the theology of that song, and it's got some things. But I love the heart of it because the reality is Satan's not that self-aware. He still thinks he's winning. <laughs> But my point is, from a Christian perspective, he's fallen, he's done, and he lost the victory entirely right there on the cross. I'm stoked. What about y'all? Can I ask you a question, though? If Satan couldn't screw it up, why are you so proud to think you can screw it up? How often do we find ourselves in those places where we're like, oh my gosh, this week, Lord, what are you doing? Why would you even bother with me, God? Hey, I say stupid things, Lord. You hear stupid things come out of my mouth all the time. I can't believe you. Why would you even bother with me? And yet God's like, I know you're going to say stupid things. I'm still going to use it for my good. Why would I think that God's grace is not sufficient for my sin? Listen, I've got a sticker on the back of my car. I wish it was a lot bigger. It says this. Says, person, dear person behind me, you cannot out sin God's grace. He has more grace than you have sinned. And as a Christian, the goal of our life is to say, oh Lord, would you take this stuff away that I don't keep walking in it? And you walk in this walk of sanctification, right? We're being worked out into a cleaner and clearer picture of who Jesus is in our lives. But y'all, do not let the enemy win a victory by being like, oh man, I'm just too far gone. God can't use me this week. Oh yeah, he can't even he can use you right now. Repent and move on. Amen. Get up and keep walking. Yeah. Do not let the enemy win a victory. I don't know who needs to hear that, but that's a, there it is. You can't mess up God's plan. And by the way, even in your mistakes, he's using it in his plan. He's that big. And finally, we see Peter, make a third point here about who Jesus is. God had a plan, but it happened through who? Lawless hands that wanted him there. It happened through lawless hands. He says clearly, it's God's plan. God is, is absolutely sovereign, and yet God had a plan, but it happened through the lawless hands. I'm gonna blow some Calvinist minds and some Arminianist minds, Ready? If you fall to one side or the other, we here at this church, Calvary Chapel as a whole kind of holds to a middle ground. We're Calvinists to the Arminians and Arminianists to the Calvins, right? Because they're both in scripture. I heard it said this way, and this is kind of the way I see it. God sovereignly chose to give us free will. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. Sure. Sure. God sovereignly knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus was going to end up on that cross. There's no doubt about it because God wanted it to happen and God was going to make sure it happened. And he didn't force anyone's hand in doing it at the same exact moment. Lawless hands did it. And by the way, before we go the way of the Catholic church, and I I pray that they've softened on this. I don't really know. But listen, why did all of most of the, uh, I shouldn't say all, most of the, you know, all of the, um, or most of the uh, crusades happen, because not only were they going to take the Muslims out, but they were also going to go take out the Jews because they were the ones that killed Jesus. There's times that I say kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not really. I read it in a book that there was this confession booth set up, and there was all these people that came into the confession booth. Blue Like Jazz is the book, if you ever want to read it, by Donald Miller. But He wore this monk robe and like smoked this big Gandalf pipe and everything, and he would go into this confession booth, and these people from the college in Portland, Oregon, and if you've ever been to Portland, it's pretty liberal, and so all these people come in and be like, you just want us to tell us all your sins? And he was like, no, this is us as Christians telling you about all of our sins. And he's like, first, I want to apologize for all the crusades. They were pretty messed up. And so I've used that line. The crusades were pretty messed up, y'all. Why? Because they blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. But who killed Jesus? You did, and I did. We all did. Yeah. He bore all of our sin on the cross, not just the Jews. Amen. We all killed him. So let's not just look at the scripture and be like, oh yeah, good job, Pete. Rip those Jews to shreds. Nah, he's ripping us all to shreds. Yeah. We all put them there. We all got lawless hands. I don't think it's by mistake. We don't, we don't pick and talk about how the worship's going to go, but I love that it was give me clean hands today. That message was coming through loud and clear to me because I'm like, oh Lord, these are lawless hands. These are lawless hands. These things, these hands have put you on the cross on more than one occasion and sadly have more probably in the future. Guys, we're all there. We all did it. God had it planned, but our sin, you guys, is just that, our sin. We need to recognize that. Too often in the American church and maybe other places, but I'm just going to pick on us because this is what I know. Too often, we're like, oh, man, the enemy is just so powerful and so just taking me out that Satan made me do it. No, first off, just, let's just own this. Satan is not omnipresent, so Satan can only be at one place at one time. We actually read in the book of Revelation, where's Satan most of the time? Up in heaven complaining about us. Satan didn't make you do that. And by the way, don't be so proud. He, you are not nearly important enough on this earth for Satan himself to invest time in you. It's probably some stupid little imp demon. Now I'm not minimizing spiritual warfare and I'm not minimizing temptation and the ways that the enemy does attack us, but who sins when you sin? You do. You sin. Own it. It's your sin. Why is it important to do that? Because when we do that, it gets us to this next step, which is here's my garbage. Here is my pus and you know, maggot-infested nastiness, God. Please take it from me and pour your blood all over it. Forgive me for it. Please, God. Do you understand? There's a big difference between that and like, oh, Satan made me do that. Would you just spank Satan, God? Satan didn't do nothing. You did it. Yeah. You did it. It's important. That's what Peter was boldly proclaiming to these Jews. Yo, y'all put him on the cross. Yeah. You all did this. You killed your Messiah. Do you understand? And again, we killed our Messiah. (laughs) And he went there willingly for us. It's awesome. There's such good news here. Verse 24, let's keep reading. Before I carry this around and put it down again, let me take a drink. Verse 24 says this, God raised him up. God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What did Peter say? Jesus didn't stay dead. Y'all killed him, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. God raised him from the dead. It wasn't at all possible for Jesus to remain dead. The Lutheran theologian, Robert Bertram, if any of you guys are up on your theologians, they, he made this observation that I really thought was an awesome observation. He said this, you guys. It says, the abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body during birth. Whew. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Ladies, when you're having a baby... The process just does itself, doesn't it? It kind of works it out. Now, listen, I'm not a woman. I have no idea what what that's like. But I've witnessed my two, you know, two of my children being born. I've witnessed those things. And I can tell you, it seems like, essentially, it just kind of happened. You're not going to hold that baby in and be like, hold on, I got a birthday coming up. (laughs) Wanted to wait one more day. Too bad. It's happening anyway. I love this. The abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body during birth dude, you know what I thought of? This is what I thought of. I, and maybe, listen, how many, how many of y'all remember the Iron Sheik and Andre the Giant? And come on, right? Hulk Hogan. Who remembers? I'm not talking about Hollywood Hogan when it was garbage. I'm talking about Hulk Hogan in his yellow tights. Some of y'all maybe aren't old enough to remember this. That's right. But here's the deal. He used to be getting beat down by the Iron Sheik and Andre the Giant at the same time, and he's getting pounded down, and he'd be down on his knee, and he'd be like, oh, beaten down, and you're like, oh, no, he's going to lose, he's going to lose. And then you would see his hand, and it would come up, and it would start shaking, and he'd be like, and he'd stand up, and they'd be pounding away on him, and he would stand up and, like, and start wailing on people. Woo! That's what I think about Jesus coming up out the grave. He's like, hold on, I ain't done. Sorry, when I read scripture, I get visuals. You guys, I need you to hear something. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus is central, is central to salvation. It is central to salvation. If we don't get this part, we don't get it. We don't understand it. I need you to hear this. You are not saved here today by believing that Jesus was a human that walked the earth. Do you know what you are? You are with 99.999% of thinking human beings that already recognize that that's the case. And by the way, there are tons of atheists that will absolutely, scholarly people that have their doctorate degrees in things, that will say, yeah, Jesus obviously was a human. We have way too much historical evidence of the fact that he was a human being that walked the earth. That doesn't save you. You're not saved by believing that Jesus just died on the cross. Again, most scholars, including atheists, believe that he died on the cross. Where it gets important Mm -hmm. is that he came back. That's the most important piece. Now, his life, perfect and sinless. Very important to us. His death, a perfect sacrifice that out of any person ever alive, this guy didn't deserve to die because he did nothing wrong at all, ever. But he died for us anyway. But if if he didn't come back, you guys, then everything he said was garbage. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus was either a liar and a lunatic or the Lord. And you've got to figure out who he is because he's, he's either a complete liar that isn't worthy of our time at all because he said some really radical things like, yo, kill me, I'm coming back. Knock this temple down, and in three days, it's going to come back up again. And they're like, oh, you're talking about the building? No, guys, you missed it. Talk about him. I believe he did come back. And not only that, you guys, and it's not like I just believe it because I've got this blind faith, and I'm like, yeah, this is where I'm staking my claim. What did Peter say? Peter made it clear that it's all throughout Scripture that this is the way it was going to be. Guys, you have to recognize that Jesus rose from the grave. It is an empty grave. It's the key to the power of Jesus having power over death and hell. And Peter, again, goes to Scripture to prove his point. He quotes Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11 for you note-takers, and he points out a couple obvious truths. He says, David, he wrote this, but he was being prophetic when he wrote it. Because why? Because this can't be talking about David. Like, let's just read it here quick again. David says concerning in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He was not calling himself the Holy One. Why? Well, they, Peter makes it clear. He's like, yo, if you want, after I'm done talking, we can go on a field trip and go see the bones of, of David. He's dead. His body is entirely corrupted, it's gone. It's rotted. It's removed. There's nothing left except some bones. That was who David was. So David wasn't talking about himself, he was speaking prophetically about the Messiah that was to come. It wasn't doubted by anyone, any Jew, that David was not just a king, but also a prophet. But you see, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God begins to reveal the Scripture to Peter, this dumb old fisherman that's like, whoa, look at these things. Shocking. You guys, Scripture tells us throughout the Old Testament, it's not like David just had some promise and then he started touting it and no one else had ever heard it. It's all throughout Scripture, you guys, that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. It was promised. To David, flip over with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. This is just one example. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 5. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his, excuse me, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You guys, here Jeremiah is prophesying about something that hasn't actually happened yet. Is Israel dwelling securely? Nope. Not yet, not yet, but they will. We read about it in the book of Revelation. When Jesus steps foot back on this earth, you guys, Jerusalem will be the center of our world. Everything will go back to there. He will rule and reign from there. They will be completely safe. There will be nobody against them. And I want to also talk about this, you guys. For those of you that were here when we were going through the book of Matthew, I don't know, years ago now, who knows, when we were going through <laughs> 2020 or something, I don't know. Anyway, when we were going through the book of Matthew, we read in the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew starts off with this genealogy, leave it to a tax collector to be like, let me start with the most meticulous thing, right? And, but he did. And what did he do? He showed us that Jesus was a descendant of David through Mary, through Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, here's what's really interesting. Luke goes a different way. He shows us another one through the line of Joseph. Joseph, the legal father. Legal father, right? He wasn't his father, not physically. God was the father of Jesus, but he was a legal father. So do you understand how, Jesus, how God didn't leave it to chance? There's no way around the fact Jesus was of the line of David. No matter how you slice it, he was of the line of David. And so we went through all that, and we looked at these things. And so in light of all this knowledge, I want to take a moment and look at a couple of the astounding things that David prophesied right here in this section that that Peter's pointing out. David made the point that the Messiah would not be abandoned to Hades. You guys, Hades here kind of means the underworld as a whole. Why do I say it that way? Well, let's think about this. Before Jesus, you need to hear this, heaven didn't have anybody in it, really. It was in Abraham's bosom. You guys ever hear of that, Abraham's bosom? If you go and you want to, for you note-takers, we're not gonna go there, but Luke chapter 16, verse 22, there's a parable that Jesus gives that I do not personally believe was just some made-up story, and here's why. And there's some debate here in scholars. Some scholars believe this is just a parable. It's not a real story. It didn't really happen. I believe it did, and I'll tell you a couple reasons why I think there's solid arguments for it to have happened and why it matters. Jesus told a lot of parables, didn't he? Is kind of his primary means of communication with people. Most of the parables, like the parable of the sower, do you guys know the sower's name? No. What about the, uh, what about the parable of the, um, the, of the prodigal son? Do you know the prodigal son's name? Nope. Most of these things, there's no real names attached. There's nothing. It's just a story. He's just talking. This parable, there are names attached, and not just names, like specific names and specific locations. And specific things happening that we don't really see as clearly in other parables. And so I don't think Jesus was just telling a story. I think Jesus was telling something that really happened from a deeper spiritual level than we could ever get our heads around as humans. And so when he's talking about the rich man and Lazarus, is the parable I'm talking about, if you guys haven't caught on to that. He talks about the rich man, he talks about Lazarus, and they're on two different sides of this chasm of the underworld. One is on, in Abraham's bosom, and the other one, that's the that's Lazarus. And the rich man was in Hades, was in torment, okay? By the way, the way I read scripture, and I freely admit, maybe I don't got my head around it completely yet because it's talking about things that are pretty heady and weighty, but I don't think that this Hades, as bad as it was, is as bad as eternal torment is going to be. I think that's going to be even worse. Now, again, I don't know. All I do know is what Jesus made it clear was is that there was Abraham's bosom, which is where everybody went. It was kind of like a holding tank. It was probably the closest thing we could ever get to this one word that I don't like of purgatory. It's not purgatory. They weren't there working anything off. There was nothing like that. Purgatory doesn't exist biblically. You don't, won't find it anywhere. But it's kind of this place that everybody there had lived holy lives and sought the Lord and, and lived under the sacrificial law as best they could and their hearts were right, right? before the Lord, they lived righteous lives unto the Lord as best they could in the dispensation they were in. Those guys, those people, men and women, were in Abraham's bosom. They were in rest. And we saw and we read about what I call the first zombie apocalypse, which is probably not the most best way of putting it, right? But what happened? Well, the reality is is that when Jesus died, you guys, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22 talks about what happened when Jesus died. He went down into Hades, and he did two things. He released those from Abraham's bosom. The mass majority, I don't know what the percentage, 99%, whatever, went straight up into heaven. They just, they just translated it up into heaven. We reread, though, this crazy story that when he died, there were some that came up out of the grave, and they started walking around. And the way it reads in the Greek and the way I understand it is that there were some that ended up just living again until they died again, almost like Lazarus. I almost think that they got a a bum deal. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true. I don't get exactly what that day looked like. I don't understand it. Can you get your head around the fact that people came back and that we read that in Scripture? I don't quite get it. But they were the ones that were in Abraham's bosom. And they went in and they checked out the temple. They went and looked at things. It's crazy. That happened. What else happened? Well, we read in 1 Peter that he went into the other side. He went across that chasm, that impassable chasm. And he went over there and he told every person that was there, listen, you are here because you chose to go your own way and not follow Yahweh, not to follow God. You were your own God. You lived in such a way that you thought your way was the best. Well, this is the end result of that. And this is why you're going to be here eternally. So he set those free that were waiting on the Messiah their entire lives and died waiting. He set them free. They were in heaven. From now, we don't, there is no more Abraham's bosom. It doesn't exist. We just go straight to heaven, right? But Hades is a place and it's real. What we understand is that Jesus was very busy during these three days. The next thing we learn, too, is this. Secondly, David says that the Messiah would not see corruption. He lived his life in perfection. He bore our sins as a perfect sacrifice. He is holy, you guys. Even in death, he was holy. Listen, let somebody start nailing a nail through your wrist and through your feet and watch how many curse words come out your mouth. I'm just saying, not him. Not one. What did he do instead? Forgive him, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. Y'all, I don't know if I got much forgiveness in my heart if they're nailing through my feet. I'm just being honest. Because I'm not a perfect human being, but he was. Perfectly God, perfectly man, living his life. And God proved all of who Jesus was by raising him from the dead on the third day. He did not see corruption. His flesh didn't rot. He was whole, whole. The last thing we read is vitally, vitally important as well is that Peter not only says all these things and points all these things out, but he says this. He's like, we all saw him. What does he mean by we all? I don't think he meant just those 11. I think he meant all 120. Everyone in that upper room, he's like, we saw it. We talked to Jesus. We ate with Jesus. We hung out with Jesus after he had died and rose again. And I need us to get our head around this, you guys. He was staking everything, everything on this guy, Jesus, and not just him. He was speaking for everyone in that upper room that had been waiting 10 straight days for the Holy Spirit to fall. He was throwing them all essentially under the bus because if this wasn't true, then they had lost everything in the process of what? Nothing. No, they believed it with all their hearts. And that's the thing I was talking about earlier. I don't believe just by blind faith. You guys, this faith in who Christ is for years and years and years has literally meant the death of people. They have lived their lives with this knowledge that when I die, I'm going to heaven because of the blood of Christ. I believe it that much that I I can tell you my prayer would be, as a matter of fact, I think I can say this with pretty big confidence. If you're going to put a bullet, a gun to my head and pull the trigger, well, then go right ahead because I know where I'm going and I'm not going to be afraid to tell you that. That's easy. What's harder? Living, walking it out day by day, isn't it? But guys, my faith isn't just some random faith that I have in something, it's built upon the truth of Scripture. And on the foundation of thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of others before us that have gone before and have died before and have lived their lives entirely for Christ. And I don't need all that, but boy, that adds a lot of weight to it. What about y'all? What weight are you adding? Whose lives around you are wanting to see What's going on with Christ? What's going on? Who is Jesus to you? And what does all that look like, you guys? Do you understand the weight that we are right now choosing either to walk in or to walk from? We're going to talk more about that. Peter also makes it clear now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand, the, the, the hand of power, the right hand of God, and they have poured out the Holy Spirit And he's saying, y'all are just here witnessing that right now. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Your footstool. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter now makes a point to say, hey, David also prophesied this in Psalm 110, verse one. Here, David makes a very interesting statement. He says, Yahweh said to my kurios. Those are the two Greek words that are, well, Yahweh is technically a Hebrew word. But he says, basically, Yahweh, God. God the Father said to my supreme authority, my master, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. David, the king, said, the person that's above me is sitting at the right hand of my God. It's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Again, Peter's making it clear. This isn't David talking about David. This is David prophesying about Jesus. And then Peter makes an absolute statement. He says, this Jesus you crucified is the Messiah. He is our kurios, our 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 eternal supreme authority. And I need you to hear this, Christian. I need us to hear this. Church, where is the power that we find in the church today even? It's in a people that know that God is their Lord, and it's not the other way around. Why is there not a lot of power in America? And let me rephrase that. Why is there not a ton of power here in New England? Why is this such a spiritually dead area? Because too many Christians walk around thinking they're, they're the power. They think they're the one that's going to tell Jesus how it goes. And they don't truly grab hold of the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's your boss. If he says jump, you better ask how high. A church that gets a hold of that truth begins to walk out in the power of the Spirit. That's what I want for us, you guys. Let's finish it up. 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart Generation. Church, we need the world to hear that. We need to hear that. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter finished his message, you guys, and the Holy Spirit did what only the Holy Spirit can do. He broke so many of the people that were there. He broke them out of their tradition. He broke them out of their pride. He killed and crushed every part, every hindrance that held them back from recognizing who Jesus was and what they needed. And he did an amazing work there. And they asked a great question. I'd say the greatest question, what shall we do? How do we fix this? And Peter had an answer, repent. Turn away from your sin. Stop walking in the path that you're walking on thinking you're all set and you've got it all figured out. Well, aren't you so proud? And recognize that Jesus is the way. The truth and the life. He's it. He's everything. He's the air you're breathing, y'all. We don't do anything without him. We're just so arrogant that we think we do. Christians, we are all called to repent. It's a one-time thing to receive Christ, but it's a constant thing day by day by day by day by day because I don't know about y'all, but I'm a screwed up human being. How about you? And I do screwed up human things constantly. Ask my wife. Accept that Jesus paid for all of it on the cross. And then he rose again. It's it's done. All you have to do is accept it. If you're here today and you have some sin that you're like, I can't talk about that. It's too bad. Nah, it's not too bad. It's not. It's not. There's no sin that is greater than the grace of God. The only Unforgivable sin is not repenting of your sin. The only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit telling you today? If you're here today and you don't believe, come to me. Accept the work that Jesus did on the cross and receive me. What's the unforgivable sin? Not accepting Jesus. It's the only thing that is going to send you to hell. Everything else is forgivable. Everything else. You just have to accept it. You guys, the next thing that's said here is very interesting. David says, repent, and he says, be baptized. And need you to hear this. Baptism was not essential for salvation. That's not at all what Dave, or what uh, Peter was digging at here, and here's why I say all that, and we, you probably heard this a million times, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll make this quick. Do you think that Jesus on the cross, whenever the, whenever the, the uh, criminal was there and he was like, hey, you know, I, am I going to be with you when you go? Like, I really want to. I believe it's you are who you are. And he was like, you're going to be with me. Do you think he was like, hold on, guys. Hold on one second. Let's just hit a pause. And then they both came down off the cross and found a body of water to get baptized quick. <laughs> nah, it didn't happen. They hung there and died. The, the crook died. And Jesus is like, you're going to be with me when you die. Baptism isn't essential, and I need us to also understand culturally, you guys, baptism was not a thing. Do you understand that? Like, we look at John the Baptist, so we're like, well, of course, that's what they did. No, baptism, baptizo, the Greek word, you know what it means? Get a bath. Go clean yourself up. So whenever you go and you're like, man, I'm getting in the shower, you can be like, I'm going to go get a baptizo. That's essentially what it meant, but, but here's what happened. John the Baptist came on the scene and started doing something kind of radical. He's like, yo, you need to be cleansed and not just clean. Like, yeah, you might be dirty, but guess what? I'm wearing some goat or some camel hair and eating some locusts. I got some nasty teeth and I'm dirty too. That's not what he was talking about. He's like, clean yourself inside. Let God do something. And why? Because I'm a messenger to tell you that I'm baptizing with water, but there's one after me that's going to baptize with fire. And so why did Peter say be baptized? Because I need you to hear this. It was an outward sign of something that God had already done on the inside. It still is. But I need us to also hear this. We get together, by the way, October 1st. If you wanna be baptized and you have been already as a Catholic when you're a baby, whatever, or or whatever reason that you wanna be baptized, please talk to me, talk to somebody and make sure I find out on October 1st After second service at 1.30, we're going out to the ocean, and we're going to baptize people. I'm hoping it's a little bit warmer than it was in April. So here's the deal, though, and this is why I bring it up. To the Jews, why do you think John the Baptist made such a splash, so to speak, no pun intended? Because, you guys, it was crazy. And people were like, whoa, what are you doing? They thought it was crazy. Do you know what it meant for these 3,000 when they were baptized? They were saying, I am being baptized. I'm dying with Christ and rising again with him. I am making an outward declaration of this. And do you know what that meant to their workers, to their boss? It meant you no longer have a job if you're a Jew. Most of them. Do you know what it meant to their family? It meant they didn't have a family anymore. You know what it meant to many of their friends? They didn't have friends no more. You know what it meant for a lot of Christians? It meant their life. Eventually. What they did in this moment, you guys, the only comparable thing we have in the modern day is a Muslim coming to Christ because it means exactly those things for Muslims. It means torture. It means uh, deprivation. And, and, and those, are the, those are the kind of the easier things. The worst things are that usually you lose your family. You lose your job. You lose everything. How do we know this? Guys, go and read Paul's letters. He talks all the time. Hey, guys, we're taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem was destitute. We're going to learn more next week. They didn't just start a commune because it was fun. And they were a bunch of hippies. They did it because they're like, we've lost everything. All we've got is what we got. If we don't live communally, we're all going to die. It meant something. It still means something. American church, we don't get it. We just don't get it. I want you to hear this. Peter said something profound in verse 39 too that I think we need to hear. This was not just for the Jews that were present in that moment. This was for all people. Jews and those what? That were far off. Do you think America is far off from where Jerusalem is? It is. He was saying it's for everybody. Everyone that Jesus has called to himself. Who is Jesus called to himself? What did he tell the disciples? What did he tell us to do? Go out into the world. How far into the world? All the way out to the ends of the earth. We are all called. Are you willing to accept the calling? Again, I'm going to probably blow some really hardcore Arminianists and hardcore Calvinists. We are all called. You have to accept it. We read here that about 3,000 people did just that. They accepted it. And I can't make it clear enough. This was not a light and easy decision. It meant the loss of everything for them. And by the way, I need us to hear this, Americans. It could mean the same, and I believe it probably will mean the same someday for us for us here in America as the Lord tarries. And I need to drop some things on you, some, some statistics, you ready? Because I believe that as the Lord begins to bring turmoil and and, and things here, that we're going to start to see who is really, really genuinely aiming to follow after the Lord and who's just playing church. Mm. Some statistics to back that up. According to a Pew Research study in September of 2022, which is the newest one I could find, 64% of Americans say they're Christians. According to a different study by Pew Research in 2022, same year, only 32% of Americans attended church at least once. A month. That's a huge disparity. It tells me a couple things. First off, church is not what saves you. Just make that clear. It's Christ who saves you. But any Christian knows. Any Christian that's studied the word any amount of time. Anybody that's been walking with the Lord any amount of time knows that the Bible makes it clear that, man, do not forsake the fellowshipping in the saints. Stay together. Stick around each other. Be built up by one another, encourage one another, challenge one another, grow, be a group together, be in community one with another. 64% of Americans say they're Christians, but only 32% of Americans come one time a month, guys. 12 times a year. That is not a good statistic. It's not hard to see the disparity, and I believe you guys, those are the people that are going to be the quickest to fall away when things get hard. If you're already already saying, like, eh, I don't really need church, I don't really need to be a part, and by the way, I've got a thousand other things I could throw in the, in the way of being part of a body of believers, well then, it's going to be that much easier when it gets hard. And it ain't hard yet here. We're not in China. Where they're driving hours and hours, or not driving, riding bikes hours and hours and hours and hours and staggering their times to come so that the police don't see them coming, so they can sit all day. I heard a pastor, he showed up and he was going to teach him Matthew. Do you know what he ended up teaching him? The entire New Testament. He taught for 26, eight hours straight by God's grace. And then they drove hours home. They, they rode their bikes hours home and said, We'll be back in three days. And they went the whole way through the Old Testament. We don't understand, you guys. But I think we may. Possibly. I want to be building up our faith now, you guys. I want to be people that are saying, God, now I want you. And now I want to know who you are. And now I want to be about your business. And now I want to be telling people, even at flight, whenever I'm getting my coffee about who you are, Jesus, because when it's easy, I want to do it easily. Because when it gets hard, that's whenever the practice comes into play. Do you understand? If you're not practicing now, what do you think it's going to be when it gets hard and you're actually on the field? You're going to be like a wimp. Why? Let's not be that way, y'all. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, can I just say something? I'm going to say exactly what Peter said. Repent. Give up your life that probably, if you're here today, isn't working out as good enough or as good for you. It wasn't working out for me. It was either Jesus or a knife in my wrist. And I had the knife in my wrist. I was just too big of a coward to actually plunge it. But it was Jesus that fixed me and healed me and fixed the missing pieces in here. And he can do that for you. He can do that for all of us. And all it requires is for us to say, man, God, my way is horrific. Come and fix it. I repent. I give up my sinful ways. I'm going to give you this bucket of maggot-infested pus and say, here it is. I don't want it anymore. Do something beautiful with it because I don't know. I can't do it. And he does. I'm living proof. That's all that's required for you to get to heaven. That's why I said it's simple. It's not hard. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to deal with that today. Come up here. There's going to be people up here to pray with you. I know we're a little late already, but there's going to be people up here that are here to pray with you. And I'm not acting like you have to come up. But can I just encourage you? If God's prompting your heart, then get up here and deal with it. If you have a prompting in your heart, grab the person next to you. They can pray with you too. It's not rocket science and there's definitely nothing special about being up here. It's just an opportunity. And the last thing I want to say is this. If you're here today and maybe you look at your life and you're like, "Man, I I've lost along the way as a Christian. I've lost the simplicity of just sharing my faith with others, of just talking about who Jesus is, of just living this life in such a way for my coworkers and everyone else around that just simply is different, that is allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my heart. If that's you here today, get up here and get some prayer. There is nothing weird about coming up. I need you to hear this, and I need us to hear this, New Englanders. I'm really gonna try and cut this short. I know we're over. I need you to hear this, guys. I, we, I was talking with a brother who lived out in the Midwest, and I I had the privilege of living in the Midwest, living on the West Coast, living in other countries. I've had the privilege of living everywhere. And can I just say something? This is the one and only place I've ever been in my entire life where everyone looks at prayer as some weird, scary thing that you would never come up to get. Because you look what? What do you think you look like? I have no idea. But I know nobody takes advantage of it everywhere else I've ever been. When I was in Nebraska, there were two to 250 people in a 4,000-person church. Every Sunday, they were waiting on prayer. And the line was so long that even though they had 30 or 40 people there to pray with people, that it got to a point where people just turned around and like, what do you need prayer for? Let's pray. But people took advantage of prayer because we all need prayer, don't we? Christians, we should know that more than everybody else. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you don't even get it how much you need prayer yet. Yeah? But here in New England, Christians are so like, nah, I'm not set. You are not all set. You are a hot freaking mess, just like me. We need prayer. And so I want to see God change our hearts and break open this prideful attitude that exists here in New England to say, there are people up here to pray. It is open to you. If you don't come up, no one looks badly upon you. But can I say this? If you do come up, here's what I see. I see a person that's courageous enough to admit that they are messed up and that they need prayer for something and they're willing to humble themselves enough to come up. I have nothing but respect for anybody that walks up here. And now I'm going to say something else challenging. And if you're a visitor, I'm sorry. I love you. I don't know you, so don't take this personal. 90% of our church never takes advantage of prayer. That's kind of despicable to me. I'm not saying y'all need to come up for prayer every time. And I'm definitely not challenging you to do it at this moment in the sense of like, I don't want to, if you're not feeling called to be prayed for, then don't worry about it. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But man, I wish we would take more advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. That's what I'm saying. Get it? Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Man, God, I, I want to see Awake in Great Bay wake up. I want us to see, Lord, to be a church that is, is a bunch of foolish, messed up people that are just doing our best to humble our hearts and to, to follow you with all we got. Lord, I want us to be a church that has an impact and bears fruit. And Lord, I know that we will never, ever, ever do that without you, Holy Spirit without you moving in us. God, I pray that we as a church would be a church that sees things clearly, that sees our own heart as clearly as we can and just how depraved and messed up we are. And Lord, how perfect and amazing and beautiful you are. And Holy Spirit, how much you want us to repent, to admit our own stupidities, Lord, and give them over to you so that you can begin to do a good work in them. Lord, that you can begin to change us. Lord, that at the end of our lives, Lord, we look back and we're like, oh, Lord, I can't believe what a work you've done in this crazy life. So God, I pray, Father, first and foremost, if there be anyone here that doesn't know you yet, God, I pray that you would give them the courage and everything they need, Lord, in order to step up or to grab someone and not just walk out of here thinking that everything's okay because it's not okay. There's nothing about this world that's okay, and that's why we need you. And so, Jesus, would you get a hold of their hearts today? Lord, for us as a church body, Lord, you know each and every person here and what they're dealing with and what they're walking through. Lord, you know every proud heart. Lord, you know every humbled heart. God, you know every little bit of everything about all of us, Lord God. Father, you know me I don't even know me that well. God, you know me better. And Lord, I'm asking and I'm praying, God. I think with all humility, I believe, Lord, that you are calling us to something deeper. But God, I know that 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 will never happen until we begin to humble ourselves before you and submit our lives to you. So God, I pray that for our church body. I pray that today for our people, Lord. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.